My name's Glenn, and I'm one of the pastors here at Willow Park Church, and we give you a, a really warm welcome, and uh, if you're look, watching on the internet or at Lake Country, a special welcome to you as well. Uh, it's always good to speak and preach in your home church, and, uh, and I'm very grateful once again for the opportunity. Phil, as uh, Steve said, is on holiday this week, and uh, don't, try, don't try and find him. I think he's well buried <laughs> Not literally, I hope. Just bunkered down. Um, but uh, I'd appreciate your prayers. Today's, uh, it's always a busy day for Phil and I when we preach, because we, we preach on Saturday night and Sunday morning, and then we, you probably see us just running off the stage and heading straight out, because we shoot over to South in the missionary, and we preach there again. And then I'm preaching tonight at Green Bay, and then twice a day for the rest of the week at the family camp, which I'm really looking forward to. So lots of speaking. We'd really value your prayers and I'd ask that God would move at the family camp there. That'd be wonderful. Last week, we were looking at the first part of Jude. And if you didn't hear that message, I encourage you to go online and listen to it because Jude was doing a wonderful job of reminding us that as Christians, we are... Can, can anybody remember what the first one was? Pop quiz? Oh, thank you, Jesus. There's three. (laughs) We were called, we're beloved, and we're kept. And the beautiful promise that that is, is a Christian that God sought us out. You are chosen. You're approved. You're accepted. And that he loves us. We're his beloved. And then he keeps us. And there's such wonderful promises. And, And then Jude goes into some quite difficult teaching towards the church about guarding them against false teaching at that time. Even though we're called, we're beloved, and we're kept as Christians, we still drift. We still drift. It's like we get caught in a cycle at times where we feel very strong, and we feel very connected, and and then we we move into this sense of feeling weak and disconnected, and, and and we drift. And whether you're a Christian here today, or maybe you've come into church this morning for the first time in a, in a long time, or you, maybe you've come with uh, some family or friends, and you're just exploring what Christianity is about, you can, you can connect with this as well. There's times in our lives we feel very strong, feel very energized, feel like life is in control, everything's going well, and then suddenly it's like the weeds appear. Things start going amiss, and we kind of go through this cycle of feeling strong and weak, and we tend to drift away from what we know life should be like. As Christians, we are called, we're beloved, we're kept, and yet there's this kind of residual sense of sin in our lives that we struggle with. We're no longer, uh, we're no longer caught under the bondage of sin. We're not caught by sin in our heart, but we still struggle with the temptation. We can drift easily towards sin, an internal drift that often results in external hard work. We try really, really hard to make sure that our externals are under control. We, we work on the symptoms, if you like. But the reality is that we all know There are externals, our hard work, our effort, our desire to make sure that all is seen to be well, or that we come over well, doesn't equal godliness. The external factors don't equal godliness. It's it's the internal, what is God doing in your heart that that will cause you to get closer to him. We do not drift into godliness. 
We don't become godly. We don't become better in Christ and in this world by accident. It does take effort, but it's got to be grace-driven effort. It's got to be a certain type of effort. Otherwise, we're just trying to work on a, a better version of ourselves. I don't know who it was, the famous philosopher that I can't remember their name, that says, wherever you go, there you are. You cannot escape what's going on internally. But we love to try, don't we? Especially young adults and young people, you know, they see the answer as, as moving on or moving out or going somewhere new or going to a different school or if, if we could just get that, that, that girl or that guy and settle down or that job and then it goes on into our 20s and into our 30s, we're still caught up with, if we can just change our circumstances, then this internal angst that we, we, we feel at times as we drift Even though we believe that we're called and we're beloved and we're kept, there's still this struggle because it takes grace-driven effort for us to become more godly. I've, uh, as I've spoken over the years at the South, they've become quite, um, they've become quite used to me talking about my. I, I must admit, I need to confess this before the church, the wider church body. It has got to the place of of, of obsession when it comes to my lawn. Now, don't judge me because I know that there are some people in this room who resonate and relate to what I mean when we get grass envy. You look at other people's grass in your neighborhood, and then you look at your grass, and you think, hang on a second, there's something wrong, I need to do more. And what happened a few years ago, it's, like, it's almost like God sent a plague upon my grass to humble me, because, and the plague came in the form of, of dandelions. The dandelions were so thick and luscious, they were, they were amazing, and you could literally see where the border between my neighbor and my house began and end because there was a line of dandelions. I couldn't understand. My side, plague. His side, green, luscious, beautiful grass. And I was reminded every time I left in the morning that, Glenn, you're failing. Look at your lawn. So I'd get the lawnmower out, and I'd cut them all down and feel good about myself for a couple of days. I'd pick some of the odds and ends up of the, of the dandelions up and throw it onto his lawn. And the hope that never worked. I'd walk around my neighborhood looking at other people's lawns and wondering why they didn't have dandelions. And, and I was working hard at just mowing the weeds, but the weeds keep on coming up. Make me feel good for a bit. The other day, I was uh, actually it was in the spring. I was walking around our neighbourhood, and I, I just saw something that just warmed my heart. Uh, a couple of people in our area have the, the fake lawn. I think it's called Synther lawn or something like that. It's kind of you know what I'm talking about, right? This kind of I don't know if it's plastic. I don't know what it's made out of. But one particular neighbour, I hope they're not here. I apologise if you are. But they had this 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 green fake grass, and then right in the middle of it was a dandelion. Just made me so happy. (laughs) The weeds will always find their way out, though, won't they? You can cut them down. And I was told by somebody very wise in the church, and I actually did this and it worked, is that the way to get rid of the weeds is to feed the lawn. And then the weeds don't have room to grow. That's a great picture of life. If we put the right stuff in, then the drift reduces. 
We don't have to work hard at trying to work on the externals because the externals will follow the internals. So how do we become more godly? How do we feed our lives without it just becoming a checklist of our own effort? Because we're not very good at improving ourselves. We need, we need a framework to work in. And, and so what Jude is doing here at the end of this, of this chapter in Jude 20 and 21, he's coming to the end of his thoughts towards this church. And they're really being challenged and going through a very chaotic time. And he's saying, look, just, just keep going. Look, here's a key, and, and this is what he says. But you, beloved, because he reminds them, remember last week, you're called, you're beloved, you're kept. You, beloved... Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He's saying at the end here, it's going to be okay. The change that you want in your hearts, the change that you want in your circumstances, it's going to come. That's the hope we have in Christ. Whether it's this side of eternity or the other side of eternity, it's going to come. But he tells them two really interesting things. He says you need to build yourselves up and keep yourselves in. The words build and keep in this verse is a direct command. What he's saying to this church is you need to start working hard. You need to start working hard towards a certain thing. And in working hard, you will keep yourselves in the love of God. You will feed your life. You will, the drift towards the chaos that is going on around you will be reduced. Keeping ourselves in the love of God is commanded, and and please listen, is our responsibility. It's our responsibility. Now, if you've been Christian long enough, something inside of you suddenly just might have gone, "Mm, hang on a second. Because what about grace? We don't work for our salvation. We don't work in order for Jesus to love us. In fact, we're going to see in a minute how the opposite is the case. But we're told here that we're to keep ourselves and build ourselves up. Now remember, in verse 1 and 2, Jude says, you are kept by God. And yet he says, keep yourselves. There's a tension here. We're commanded to work to stay strong and to stop the drift. You see, keeping ourselves in the love of God, building ourselves up, is possible because we're called, beloved, and kept. This kind of working, this kind of building, or as in Philippians, and we'll see this in a minute, where Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's not to gain the love of God, it's we're working because of the love of God. So it begs the question, Jude presents this, and it causes me to stop and reflect, what is it that I'm actually building on? What is it that I'm keeping myself in? Am I I concentrating on the externals? Because we live in in, in a, there's lots of Christians in our culture, and and we we value externals. We value externals. The, um, the visuals of what godliness should look like. So we, we, we don't swear unless it's Christian swear words. Gosh darn it. Stuff like that. And maybe it's something a little more cutting edge if you're, if you're younger. You know, we don't, we don't watch certain kinds of movies 
We don't listen to certain kinds of music. We talk in a particular kind of way. We have certain habits, and we value those. And they are not a bad thing. But if that is the beginning and the end of us, our working, then we're missing something because that's external. All we're doing is cutting the weeds down. I had an opportunity last March to really consider this. Um, as many of you know, I, I had to take some time off because I basically burned out. I, I fatigued my adrenal gland and, and the result of lack of sleep and just working hard and, and really getting caught up too much with ministry. The, the, the good thing in my life was actually what resulted in, in nearly ruining me, ironically. But what it did is it gave me an opportunity to actually reflect what is it that I'm building my life on. For the first six weeks of my time off, all I did is I looked at externals. I said, right, that needs to change, this needs to change, I need to stop that, I need to put that down, and don't even look at that, and don't go there, and stop this, and stop that. And I was looking at all my circumstances and, and trying to figure out how I could change my circumstances so that I, so somehow the internal angst that I was feeling would disappear and I would start feeling better. About six weeks in, God spoke to me in a way that you might go, well, yeah, duh, obviously. But I realized that God, by his grace, had counted me worthy enough to have this happen in my life so that it would highlight things internally that needed to be brought to the cross of Christ. It was the only way that he could catch my attention. I love it in Psalms where it says, he makes us lie down by still waters. I'm going to make you lie down if you don't lie down yourself. Our culture values stressful work. It's almost like unless you are stressed and pushed, you're not working hard enough. In fact, our work culture rewards stress. If you stay the longest and and look like you're walking around with your hair on fire all the time, then you will get rewarded. And I had to come to the place where God, in his grace, revealed the foundations on which I was building. I had to learn to look at myself in a different way, not at the externals, and, and, and some of the externals did need to change, but that wasn't the root cause. It, it was needed a new heart, a new way of looking at life, a new way of building as we've just seen in this scripture and I wonder whether you're the same I wonder whether you're trying to control your circumstances work on your externals build on the things that are tangible in your life in the hope that the drift reduces the weeds get chopped down and life can continue and you can you can get more godly you can become a a better version of you it doesn't work You see, in this scripture, Jude says that we're to build on something very particular. Can we have that scripture again, please? He says we need to build ourselves up in the most holy faith. The most holy faith. The most holy faith results in a new heart. Grace-driven effort is only 
possible with a new heart, a new foundation, that we're going to build on this foundation, the most holy faith foundation, not an external foundation, but a, a foundation that really is the reason that everything exists. It's, it's why God gave us the Bible. The Bible is so much more than life's instruction manual. In fact, it's not really life's instruction manual at all. Are there things in the Bible that we can apply to our lives and we will see improvement? Absolutely, yes. But the message of the Bible is the most holy faith. It's the gospel. It's Jesus Christ culminating on the cross. The message of the Bible is that that Adam and and Eve, and some of you just might have just gone, Adam and Eve, really? You believe all that? I do. I believe in everything that happened in the Bible because, especially Adam and Eve, Jesus refers to Adam and Eve And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. I may have some questions and things that I can't quite work out, but if Jesus was settled on Adam and Eve, then then I need to be settled on Adam and Eve. (laughs) And Adam and Eve willfully sinned in the garden. There was this disconnect between God and humanity. Before that, there was this beautiful imago day, the, the image of God, the way things should be, and then it got broken, and we still see the result of that in our lives, personally, and in our families, and in our, in our towns, in our world. We see the result of a broken and, uh, and desperate, sin-filled world. And so the most holy faith story began. And it resonates through the whole Bible that he, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, fully human, fully divine, perfectly sinless, would be willing to come and live the life that we're unable to live and die the death that we truly deserve. And our sin placed on him, our shame, the things that we're trying so hard to get rid of on our lives, placed on him and die with him. And then life it says, is given to us. It's the gospel. And it's that that Jude is saying we should build our lives on. It's that that enables us to keep ourselves in the love of God. Look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. Paul, the writer here, who was the ultimate driven um, kind of performance-driven guy before he came to know Jesus... He he writes this, for while we were still weak, let's just stop there for a second. Our culture does not value this word weak at all. And yet it seems to me as I read on through this scripture, at the right right time Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still weak, Jesus died for us. It seems that uh, God does value weakness, doesn't he? He values weakness. Paul says, I will boast in my weakness because it makes Jesus look better. You see, this makes Jesus look great because he's saying, look, there was nothing you could do to deserve this love. No amount of performance, no amount of things that you are chasing, no amount of good deeds is going to make you be able to reconnect yourself with God. It was while we were still weak some people say Christianity is, for, is a crutch for the weak. Absolutely. Totally 100% correct. Because a recognition of weakness is a revelation of strength in the long term because we realize that we can only actually be strong when we recognize that we can't do it. That we can't save ourselves. 
And this is what Jude is saying. Build your life on that. Build your life, Glenn, on the realization you cannot do it by yourself. Only in Christ. He says he shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. See, God loves the weak the ones that can't fix themselves, the ones that come to the end of themselves. He loves those ones especially. Those are the ones he chooses, the ones that he just seems like, I can't go anywhere else. Those that are tired of mowing the weeds, those that are tired of the drift, those that are tired or realize that life cannot give the very thing that they are searching for. Jude says, build your life on that while you are still weak, while you were still rebelling, while you were still in sin, as we heard last week, God started to call you. I want you. And it starts as this quiet whisper in the background of our life and gets so loud. I pray that some of you are staying awake at night thinking about this sort of stuff because that's how God works. He just won't let you go. Until you finally surrender and submit yourself and recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. That he died on the cross so that you do not have to be punished for the sin that you truly deserve. And then we come to that place that his life floods in us. And Jude says, build your life on that. It gives us a new view of the world. It frees us from the very things that we used to serve. Now those things serve Christ. So we used to serve our jobs. We maybe serve our TFS, TFSAs. Maybe we served our pension. Maybe we served our school. We're, we're kind of feeling like we're enslaved and entrapped. And suddenly, through Christ, if we build our life on the gospel, on the most holy faith, your job is no longer a job. It's an opportunity to live life in such a way that makes Jesus look good. That your money is just a tool to make Jesus look good. That your kids are not there to, for us to live vicariously through them. They're there so that we can teach them to love Christ more than anything. So that their lives make Jesus look good. And it frees us up. That's why it's good news. That's why Jude says, if you're going to build on anything, build on that. See, we've been given everything we need for this grace-driven work. And it is work. It's hard work. We've been given all the equipment. We've been given the spirit. We've been given all the fruit. We've been given everything we need, but we still need to work at it. Not to make him love us, but because he loves us. I was at the gym the other day, and I was sharing this last night, and... uh, and something I, I'm, I'm trying to, I think, from what I understand, it's important to kind of change things up and keep things different in order to try and get fit. Otherwise, you get kind of stuck in a rut. So one of the things that I've been trying recently, I think they're called drop sets or split sets or something, where you get weights. And in my particular case, there was nobody in the gym. It's just a small local neighborhood gym. There was nobody there. And I was doing some drop sets. And what happens is, you do, so I was doing bicep curls, as you can probably tell. Um, and... Uh, and, and the idea is you start at heavy weight and do as many as you can and you drop a weight and you do as many as you can and drop a weight and do as many as you can until you go right down to the lightest weights. So I started this, I don't know, I probably started at 90, 100 pound, like that. 
Now, I, I can't even remember. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I don't want to confess what it was. So I started at the heavyweight, nobody in the gym. Dropped a set, did as many as I could, nobody in the gym. Dropped a set, to, to a weight, you know, maybe I'm down to 10 pounds now, doing as many as I can. I drop a set, and now I'm down to the five pounds. Because your muscles are so fatigued and they're filled with lactic acid, you are screaming to yourself internally just to lift the smallest possible weight. And you are straining, there are blood vessels splitting, sweat, and you're like, and then somebody walks in. This gentleman walks in. You know those guys that are just so built up, they've got no neck? They're like the size of Alberta. They just come in. Everything's rippling. And I'm struggling over here with five pounds like this. And I'm like, oh, forget it. I'm going. I just want to get out. You have to pick up the weights just standing on a treadmill and I wonder how many of you have got treadmills or ellipticals at home that have just become elaborate clothes things, you know, that you throw your clothes on, trying to hide them so you don't have to look at them and feel guilty anymore. But actually, just standing on the thing doesn't make you fit. You see, because you are called, because you are beloved, because you are kept, God has said, look, now the adventure begins. Now we can start changing you. Now we start dealing with the weeds. Now we start dealing with the heart. So the externals are actually based on a feeding of the lawn of your life. So you're actually producing godliness. He says you've been given the equipment. Build on this. Build on the gospel. So how do we do it? I'm going to show you two ways as we finish. Very simple, and and I hope maybe you can write these down or make a note of them on your mobile device or whatever it might be. How do we actually get to work? What can I send you away with today that will enable you to work this out? It's like me giving you a set of weights. Okay, number one. Number one, you need to preach it. I'm glad I'm not called to be a preacher. Yes, you are. You have been called to preach the gospel to yourself all the time. Paul spends most of his time preaching the gospel in the letters in the New Testament to who? Christians. We need to remind ourselves of what this most holy faith is. Preach it to yourself. I mean, I give you permission. Have fun with it. Stand in front of a mirror and go for it. You can do all the hand singers. You can even do a British accent if you want. Whatever you want to do, just preach this gospel to yourself. You need to, you need to get involved in it. You need to read the Bible. You need to read good writing about the gospel. You need to sing about the love of Jesus. And what happens, the Bible says, is our mind starts getting transformed. And that results in a transformation of the heart. We spend way too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time preaching to ourselves. See, as we start preaching, as we start speaking, then the lies that are internally there will start getting drowned out by the truth of the gospel, that you are called, you are kept, you are beloved, that Jesus loves you so much that he would be willing to sacrificially give his life for you. There is no better way to keep ourselves in the love of God to build ourselves up, than to remind ourselves daily, all the time, of the love God showed us through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
There is no better way. Preach to yourselves. After all, we have an option. We can either drift or we can stand strong. Read it. Sing it. Consider it. Meditate on it. Pray it. Learn about it. Read good literature about how much God loves you. And the side benefit of this is then you'll be able to communicate it better to others as well. Now remember we said last week it's it's God's power that saves people. So he's not relying on you getting it articulating in a perfect way. But I tell you, as you fall in love with the gospel, Christians, then it will shine out of your life. You will talk about it because you will want others to have what you have. Preach it. Secondly, pray it. How do you build yourself? How do you keep yourself? You need to pray. See, Jude says in this passage, pray in the Holy Spirit. Pray continuously. Now, I know whenever a pastor or a preacher stands up and goes, you need to pray more, it's like them just throwing a big guilt bomb out into the middle of the congregation. And then he goes, oh, I know I need to pray. But how, how do I do it? How do I pray? So we're going to just, we're just going to have a, a little exercise together. I want to show you just one way that has been a real blessing for me in the last few years. And, and it, 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 was, it came through Martin Luther's method of praying through Scripture. It's so simple and so beautiful, and yet it allows you the opportunity to preach the gospel to yourself while at the same time praying to God. So we're going to just choose one passage. And I just want to show you how simple this is. Last week, I talked about a beautiful scripture in Zephaniah 3, verse 17, and and I think it may appear miraculously behind me. There we go. I love this scripture. It's such a beautiful scripture. Zephaniah 3, 17. It says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We talked about what kind of song God would sing, and it's beautiful. So what Martin Luther would do is this. He would take a piece of scripture like this. You can use this today. Okay? Took a piece of scripture like this, and it could be any scripture at all. Maybe in your daily reading, maybe there's a passage that just kind of makes you want to pause and reflect on it for a second. So we'll just use this as an example. And then he would pray through it in a particular way. The first thing he would do is he would look for what it was that he could praise God for out of this passage. He would praise God. So, so as you approach this, maybe you're praising God that, God, God, I just thank you that you are in my midst. That I, there's nowhere I can go that will be outside of your presence. That you are always with me. And maybe there are other things as you go through, you articulate what you can praise God for that this passage has pointed you to. The second thing that he would do is he would then look at the same passage and look for what it is that he needs to confess and ask for forgiveness for. So Lord, I confess that I forget that you're always with me. Lord, I confess that I forget that you rejoice over me, that I look for approval and acceptance from others. I confess that I struggle with this. And maybe there are other things in that passage that God will highlight to you that you need to confess. And then the third thing he would do, Martin Luther, is he would ask, God, I pray today that by your Spirit, You will enable me to walk this day out remembering that you sing over me, that you like me, that you rejoice over me. Lord, I pray that you would remind me of that as I go to work today, that even though things may be difficult, that you 
Lord, would be so close that I'd be reminded that I have an audience of one. You see how you can just pray through a piece of scripture? So simple. That's preaching to self. It's praying. So praise, confess, and ask. And the beautiful side product of this is that you're, you're meditating on scripture as well. And I promise you, it will change the way you look at life. The things that you build on now, maybe some of the externals, will get replaced by you building on the gospel. Try it this week. I challenge you every day. Preach the gospel to yourself. Pray through a piece of scripture, maybe using Martin Luther's format there. Maybe it's good, you've got your own. You don't have to do this, but preach it. Pray it. And I am confident that the God who is faithful, who said, I will complete this work that I started, the God who says, you are my workmanship, I'm confident that he will transform your thinking. He will transform your hearts, that your life lawn will get fed and the drift will reduce. And that's why it's good news. The gospel is good news for us all. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus, that you willingly gave your life because of your love for us. Because you wanted to reconcile us back to the way we were before. And Lord Jesus, I pray that every one of us in this room, that by your spirit, God, that we would be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, even as we're singing. That Lord, you do rejoice over us. You do love us. You have called us. And Lord, I pray those of us who are Christ followers in the room, that that Lord Jesus, that this week, that Lord, we would build on that foundation that you laid on the cross. Lord, I pray for those who are just thinking all this through and just aren't quite sure where they are yet. And Lord, I pray that you just reveal how much you love them this morning. Call them gently. Father, I pray there will be prayers of forgiveness all around the room as we sing. We love you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for what you have done and what you continue to do. And Lord, I pray that the called and the beloved and the kept, Lord, would go today reminded once again of how much you love them. We ask these things in your good name, Jesus. Amen.